Well, good morning. If you've got your Bible, turn with me to John chapter 21. This will be our last uh, sermon in the book of John. And so I, uh, I wasn't quite sure uh, when we started this series and, and knowing, kind of coming into this morning, that this would be our last uh, sermon in this series before we uh, uh, move on to something else. Uh, I wanted to find out when this started. And so I, I looked it up when, when we launched the series as part of the village. And the very first sermon in the book of John was August 19th of 2018, uh, and today is August 18th of 2019. So it's literally a year to the weekend that we've been uh, in this series. I think I made a joke that we would be in it a year, not thinking that would actually happen, and it actually did. Uh, but just in thinking about that uh, last night, I just thought um, maybe the truth that God just brought to mind was there was so much in August of last year uh, that I did not know was coming. And there has been so much around here that has changed, and we have become our own church. Back in the day, we used to be part of the village, and now we're Citizens Church. And, and, and even some of the changes as of late that I did not see coming, and yet how kind of God to have us in a book like John where we get this picture of a Jesus who is in control and who sovereignly orchestrates all of life and loves and gives himself. And, and I just... Uh, was struck that uh, in all that has been changing, uh, Jesus just stays the same. And that has been such a stabilizing reality for me and I hope for us. John 21, start with me in verse 9. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire. Would you remember that charcoal fire? We'll need it in just a little bit. And place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Look at verse 15. We're going to spend all of our time in 15 through 19 this morning. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon... Son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Uh, social scientists and, and psychologists will talk about the four different spatial zones that we all interact in. So I don't know what plans you have today, but if you're going to interact with people today, you're going to interact with those people in one of four spatial zones. These were coined by cultural anthropologist named Edward Hall in the early 1960s. And it goes like this. The further out, the furthest out that you interact with people is what's called public space. 
and public space is anywhere between uh, 12 to 25 feet away from you. I'm not sure who came up with these distances, but the internet seems super reliable these days, so let's just go with it. Um, in the public space, you might not know people. There might be strangers there, but they're close enough uh, with you to where you could interact with them if you wanted to. And then closer into that is what's called the social space. And that's people that you interact with between four feet and 12 feet. So, so mostly it's going to be people that you could have a conversation with. And if they're in that space, you may or may not interact with them. And then uh, even closer into that is what you're all mindful of right now when it's called personal space. And that is a foot and a half to four feet from you. Now, I know immediately some of you are like, no, no, mine starts at like six or seven feet and everything inside of that. And I get that. That's why even right now and why I say you're mindful of it is because anytime you come into a room like this, you know where your personal space is and you know when people are crossing. It's why if you had your choice, you'd prefer to leave a seat in between you and the person next to you, right? Which if that's you, I want you to know there's plenty of spaces always open on the front row. That's just my personal space. So, um, and, and here's something that's unsettling. We're mindful of our personal space and we are mindful of when people come into our personal space uninvited. So some of the most unsettling circumstances in life are when you are forced into situations where strangers are in your personal space, right? Like think of a crowded elevator and how uncomfortable that is. Or if, or if you use public transit, how uncomfortable those situations can often be. Or just think about the person that you know in your life that just doesn't know that personal space exists, right? And they're always in that space and, and they just don't really know what the rules are. And if you are in here and you don't know that person, that means you are that person. And step starts in like three weeks. You need some help, brother. Uh, and that's personal space. And, and the closer someone gets to you, right, the more aware you are of the relationship. Do I know this person? Do I trust this person? There's a space even closer than personal space, and it's called intimate space. And it's anywhere from a foot from you to touching you to contact. And, and for most of us, if anyone is ever in that space on a regular basis, they are not in that space uninvited. These are the close relationships, right? These are the people that change you. These are the people that are your family or your spouse or your children or your really close friends, right? And that's the space uh, that is probably the one that we, we most guard. Okay, I don't know that this would work in every culture, uh, but in Texas, uh, in the South, in Collin County, in a church like ours, we can use these spaces as a metaphor, at least I hope, a helpful metaphor to help us understand some of what's going on in the way that we interact with God. And here's what I mean. We interact with God in these four spaces. So right now you are in a public space uh, and it's a good space. I'm very committed to this space. I love that this space exists, right? And then there's social space, and, and that space would maybe be more, if you think about your relationship with God, the, the home group that you're a part of, or the Bible class that you're in, personal space might be more like your own time with the Lord, and all of those spaces are good. The danger, though, in our context, in our climate, there is a real danger that some of us only exist in those spaces that are the easiest to enter, that stay the furthest away, and never come in close enough to where life change actually happens. Never come in close enough to where we're actually marked by a Jesus who can touch us and who can transform us. And, and if, that's, if that's us, it works like this. If you are in the public space, and like I said, it's a good space, you're in one right now, please continue being in the one that you're in right now. But if you're only in that space, 
if that's the closest you ever get, it means you only think about him when you're here. Maybe you only talk to him when you're here. And so that means maybe once a week. More than likely, that means once or twice a month. And if you do pray, even when you're not here, it means that you pray occasionally. And more than likely, we pray for things that are removed from ourselves, that are kind of going on out in the world, but not necessarily going on in our heart. Uh, And it means that, you know, maybe you've sat in the public space and you've thought, you know, I would love to be in community and maybe I need to move into the social space, but that makes you uncomfortable. And then you wonder, you know what, my relationship with God, why is it anybody else's business to each his own, right? And then you come in and, uh, Maybe you enjoy the music, but that never turns into worship of a holy God. And maybe you critique the sermon, but that never turns into allowing your life to be critiqued by the Word of God. And you just stay at a distance. Or maybe you're closer than that. Maybe you're in the social space, and you exist in both. You come to church, and then you're also in a home group or something like that. But that's as far as you've gotten. And I, gosh, I need some of you to come with me here. You're around people who love the Lord. And you're around people who live lives trying to honor him. And that's a great space. If you're in it, I'm so glad that you're in it. But if that's where it stops, that means your relationship with God is mostly a social one. That means you have only learned to relate to God when other people are in the room. It means that maybe you talk a lot more about him than you do talking to him. And you know a lot about the Bible, but only because of the other people around you who know the Bible. Or maybe you have a favorite teacher that you podcast or a favorite author that you read, and you just adopt all of their thoughts as your own. And and you talk about your struggles, but the only struggles you talk about are the ones that are happening to you. My job is hard. Someone in my life is sick. My in-laws are a bummer. My kids are crazy. And look, those things are important to talk about, but if it never turns a little deeper than that, then what you end up with, your Christian life is the sum total of having Christians in your life who support you with the unpleasant circumstances you're going through and a relationship with God that is mostly borrowed from other people's relationship with God. Maybe you've taken a step closer than that and you've got personal space. And that's communion with God. Maybe that's accountability with a couple other people, but mostly that's you reading your Bible and you praying and you spending time, uh, just you and the Lord. And, and, and look, nobody does that as much as, as, as we should do that, and I get it, but it's such a good space, and you actually change in that space. And if you're in that space, I'm so grateful that that happens in your life. But I need you to know that there is a possibility to be in the personal space and to never enter into that space that's closest to never go into the intimate space. In the personal and the intimate, they look very similar, but there's a huge difference. When you cross over into the intimate space, what you have done is you have given up control. Like if you think about, if you're in personal space with somebody, you're still, uh, they're far enough away to keep at arm's length, right? Uh, You're not completely vulnerable to them, but somebody who's in close, you've given up a piece of control. And what I'm saying about your relationship with Jesus is that in that intimate space, you are being led by Jesus, even to places that maybe you don't want to go, but you trust him to lead you. So here's what I mean. Are there places in your life, wounds, past, failures, relationship? Is there, is there trauma, right? Secrets, idols, and no one else is in that space. No one else, including Jesus, is in that space with you. What does it look like then to cross over into that? What does it look like then to be in that closest space? 
John 21 is a remarkable chapter, and in John 21, we get a picture of what it looks like to exist in that space with Jesus. John 21 is kind of the wrap-up for John for the book. He's already concluded his book, but then he gives us this chapter to show us what life with a resurrected Jesus looks like, to show that to his disciples, and that we might expect that the relationship that they have with him, we also have with them. And so what we see him doing is he... uh, eats with them and he feeds them and he invites them and sends them out into mission. But right in the middle of it, he sits down with Peter, the conversation that we read, and he engages him in a way that's challenging and uncomfortable and beautiful and restorative. And it is not the kind of conversation that you have if you only are in the public space. It's not the kind of change that takes place only in the social or even in the personal, but you have to be right with him, inviting him in close, opening your your life up and letting him do this work. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to read through this conversation. We're going to see what Jesus is doing in the life of Peter. And what I want to ask of us is as we see that work he does in that close space, is he doing any of that in your life? Is he inviting you to come in closer with him? Look at 15 again. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, Do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. In this close space, it's really important for us to see who it is that Jesus wants to talk to. He's talking to Peter, but he calls him by a different name. Did you notice that? In verse 15, in verse 16, and in verse 17, he says, Simon, son of John. We need a little bit of their backstory for us to understand what Jesus is doing. In chapter one of the book of John, starting in verse 40, it'll be on the screen behind me. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. This is the very first interaction that Peter and Jesus have. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. There's another important interaction around this name in Matthew 16. It'll be on the screen behind me. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, means son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The first thing Jesus does in the very first interaction that he has with Peter is he gives him the name Peter. Uh, He comes and and Jesus, upon meeting him for the first time, says, you are Peter. And he gives them this name that will mark his life and that will mark his ministry. Peter means rock. And it's tied to who Peter will be in the Jesus movement. He will be a force. He will be someone who is stable. And so when Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? They give the answer. And then he says, who do you say that I am? In Matthew 16, and Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, essentially, you just earned your name. You are Peter, and on the strength of your confession and the strength of who you are in this movement, I'm going to build my church. And Peter has a great career as Peter. Which of the 12 do you know most about? 
If you've been in church for any length of time, well, it's Peter. Uh, Peter's the one who walks on water. Peter is the one who tried to fight to protect Jesus. Peter's the one who did these miracles with Jesus, who went to the mountain when Jesus is transfigured. Peter has done a lot. Since becoming Peter, he has made somewhat of a name for himself as Peter, has he not? Who does Jesus want to talk to? Not Peter. Simon, son of John. He hasn't called him that since they first met. Simon, son of John. Well, who's that? Simon, son of John, is the young man that three years before this conversation was brought to Jesus, and that young man knew nothing, had nothing, and had done nothing. He was just a fisherman that nobody knew. He was the man that Jesus met and called and loved before he had done anything for Jesus. And what does Jesus want to do? He wants to take him back to that moment. It would be a little bit like this. Um, Do your parents or did your parents have a name for you that they called you that no one else did? It was like your name growing up. Um, My dad, his name is Mac, M-A-C-K. And his dad, my grandfather, his name was Mac. Uh, so my dad is a junior. Uh, he grew up in uh, Oklahoma City, and, and, and my grandparents didn't come down to visit us uh, much. And so we would go to Oklahoma City to visit them. And anytime we went to their house, my grandma and grandpa and my dad's sisters would call him by the name that he had as a kid. And that name was Mackie Jr., which is just really unfortunate for my dad. Um, sounds like a burger. But anyway, he... Uh, <laughs> I really respect my, despite this dishonoring illustration, I really respect my father. Uh, And so in that moment, something always happened for me. Whenever his mom or his dad or one of his sisters would call him by that name, uh, the effect it would have is it would make me see him differently. Like to me, he was dad. And not only dad, but he was pastor. And not only pastor, but he was a pastor to pastors. People sought his counsel. Our house was filled all of my memories as a child filled with people coming to him and he had degrees and all those kinds of things. And yet, when they spoke that name, it was as if he became in my eyes who he was before all those other things were true. Before he was a dad, before he was a pastor, before he had degrees, before he had a family, before all that, he was just a boy, right? He was a son. And that name called back to that time. That name called back to a time where he was less known for what he had done and less known for who he was, and he was just a son. Simon, son of John. This is what Jesus is doing here. He's taking him back before he walked on water, before he denied, before he confessed, before the miracles, before the garden. And in a sense, all of that is stripped away. And they're returning to this moment where he was just a young man who didn't know anything and hadn't done anything and didn't have this ministry name. And Jesus calls him back to that. Why? Because he wants him to remember that he was called by God and loved by God before he had anything to offer invited into this relationship with Jesus before he had done anything. And that is what he wants Peter to build his life on. Your life and my life are this mixture of roles, and and we are kind of the sum total of the roles that we exist in, whether that's friend or employee or parent or or whatever. And, and, And we are to the people in our lives out of those roles. Here's what I mean. I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor of Citizens Church. I'm a dad. I'm a dad to... Asher and Adeline and Ayla, and I don't get those reversed. It's important that I not mix those up. It's important that I not try to be a pastor to Asher and Adeline and Ayla, because then there's where a lot of wounds come from, and I am first a father to them before I'm anything else to them. I 
it gets really weird if I try to be a dad to Citizens Church. Most of you are my age or older, right? Uh, let's you, right? If you're uh, maybe you're a husband and maybe you're also a boss. Well, you are a boss to your employees and you're a husband to your wife, right? You're not a husband to your employees, and you're definitely not a boss to your wife, right? If you come home and you try to be a boss to your wife, that goes poorly every time. You get sent from intimate space out into public space really quickly. Um, But who I am to someone affects how I interact with them. And hear this, I will not relate rightly with them unless I am relating out of who I am to them. Does that make sense? Who are you to God at the core when you approach him, do you do so as friend? Do you do so as somebody who has a lot? Do you do so as somebody who has done a lot? Like, like if you were to put yourself in the conversation, what name would he call you by? Please, please hear me. What so often happens, especially for those of us who have followed Jesus for any length of time, is that that's actually an easier question to answer when we first become a believer. Because when we first become a believer, it's like, look, it's all my sin, and it's his love, and his love covers over my sin. And so I approach him as one who's done nothing and who has nothing, and I just receive the love that he has for me. But look, as we become somebody, as we make a name for ourselves, as we serve and as we do for God and as we start ministries and as we lead Bible studies and as we obey more and give more and serve more and sin less, we get really well-versed in how to act in the public space and we get really well-versed in how to act in the social space and even in the personal space and we can start to believe. We can start to believe that we have made a name for ourselves before God and that's who he sees as if He began loving me because of who he is, but he will continue loving me because of who I have become. And there's something really dangerous that happens if that happens. We pay less attention to our need for him and we pay more attention to what we're doing for him. And out of that grows two things. We grow really proud where we should be humble and we grow really fearful where we should be secure because my only access to God is approaching him in his name, not my own. Look, Simon, son of John. No, 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 no. I'm Peter. Not right now, you're not. Not right now. I don't care about the ministry. I don't care about what you are not important to me because of what you have done or will do. I want to take you back to the moment when I called you, when you had nothing to offer, when you were loved by me long before you were used by me. Why? Because he wants him to build his life on that. Whatever identity that grows, he wants it to grow on top of that in the close space, brothers, sisters, beloved, in the intimate space. The work Jesus will do, if you come into that space thinking that we have become somebody before him, the work he will do is he will strip us of whatever names we have that we might be called back, reduced back to that place of being loved by, invited by Jesus before we had anything to offer and knowing, and knowing that we are only and always loved by him before we are used by him. You know why that's so important? As Christians, we become so much more than that, but we never move past that. Everything we build, everything we go and do is to be built on top of that. Whoever you are, whatever you become, underneath the service, underneath the parent, underneath the spouse, underneath your work, underneath the names, is you were called by and loved by. There was an unadorned, unattractive version of you that Jesus extended his unconditional, unrelenting love to. We don't move past that. 
Look, if everything else in your life is not built on that, everything else in your life will suck the life out of you. It will. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, If I have faith and powers and understand mysteries and faith that can move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. Not, I've done nothing. Not, uh, I have nothing. But whatever I become, I will not amount to anything without love. The love that I receive and the love that I build my life on. Are you, friends, are you in the close space with Jesus? Are you in a place where over and again he's reminding you of who you are to him and who he is to you and building a life on top of that? And then next we see in the close space, Jesus does something that only Jesus can do. We see that he wants with Peter to redeem his past and restore his future. Look at me at verse 15 again. We'll read the conversation one more time. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And listen to what he says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Peter's been in this moment before. This is deja vu for Peter. Let me show you what I mean. In Matthew 26, it'll be on the screen behind me. Here's what happens. Matthew 26, starting in verse 31, then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. What does Peter say? Peter answered, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Translation, I love you more than everyone else does. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. John 18, it'll be on the screen behind me, starting in verse 17. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire. Remember that? Because it was cold, they were standing and warming themselves. Peter was also standing, warming himself. Now Simon Peter, verse 25, was standing. They said to him, you are also not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose, Peter, whose ear Peter had cut off. Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it and at once a rooster crowed. A couple of months ago, I listened to an interview uh, with the man who created the witness protection program for the uh, U.S. government. And so the interview was the story of where the idea came from and how he began uh, launching the witness protection program. And then it moved into the details of how they first started relocating people. And he was talking about what was important is to put them in a, a different city and what was important was to give them a new name or at least change their name. And as he's talking about all of these details of relocating these witnesses, the interviewer stopped and asked him, what was the most common request you got from people as they were creating a new life? And he said, didn't even pause, the most common request I got was that most people wanted a different past. Most people wanted parts of their past covered or they wanted parts of their past removed altogether. There is a uh, reality to where 
Everyone in the room has darkness in their past. Everyone in the room has things that are embarrassing from their past. Everyone in the room has, has things from the past that are uh, sources of shame and sources of guilt. And wouldn't it be great if somebody could just rewrite it and take that part out? Wouldn't it be great to just have it covered over? And so what most of us do, instead of dealing with that past, most of us like, like pushing dirt under a really nice rug. We just cover over it with good behavior or cover over it with lofty promises or cover over it by trying to be the best us that we can be. Jesus doesn't play that game. Jesus does something so much better than that with Peter. He takes him back to the past. He doesn't cover over it, but he digs it up. And in the hands of Jesus, he makes something beautiful. Peter's been here before. Jesus recreates the scene of his failure. It's this deja vu moment for Peter. When Peter denies Jesus, it says Peter is warming himself by a charcoal fire and then there are people standing around him and then he's asked a question three times and that question, he's being interrogated around what? His relationship with Jesus. What does Jesus do? Builds a fire. The only, the only two times that description of fire is used in the New Testament. It's Peter's denial in this conversation with Jesus. Charcoal fire. People standing around warming themselves. And Jesus asks him a question three times. And what's the question about? His relationship with Jesus. Why? Like, why take him back to this moment? You know this, those moments of your past, those, especially those moments of failure, they're not ones that you want to revisit. It feels cruel. It feels almost uh, painful. But what Jesus is doing is he is showing Peter that his past failures in the hands of Jesus can become something beautiful. And so Jesus goes right after it. The very first place he does is he digs into Peter's failure and he tries to draw out from Peter repentance. Not just remorse over his actions, but a repentance for the heart behind it. Here's what I mean. What question does he ask? Do you love me more than these? How could he possibly know that? What an unfair question. What Jesus is saying is look around at the disciples around you. Do you love me more than your brothers love me? And how could he possibly know that? Well, remember, that's what he claimed to know. Jesus says, you're going to deny me. I'm going to go die. And what does Peter say? If they all fall away, I'm not going to fall away. If they all have a small amount of love for you, I have a great amount of love for you. And what Jesus does is he goes after what was underneath Peter's denial. Peter was really confident in who? In himself. And that self-confidence uh, underneath the denial was this self-confidence that made him really blind to how weak he actually was. Look, repentance is not just about turning from sin. Jesus goes after what was underneath the sin in Peter's life. Repentance is not just turning from sin. It's seeing and renouncing the heart behind the sin. Jesus doesn't ask him three times, will you ever deny me again? Will you ever deny me again? Will you ever deny me again? No, what does he do? He goes after the symptom of the denial. If just the denial is dealt with, but what's, not, what's underneath it is not dealt with, it's just dirt under the really nice rug. Jesus is asking, do you love me more than these? Asks again, do you love me? Asks again, do you love me? And he's drawing out of Simon, son of John, the idolatry that was underneath the denial. Peter loved himself. Peter was really confident in himself. And Jesus wants that to be pulled out and replaced with something that will actually sustain him, right? For all of us, underneath our greatest acts of sin is what we really love. 
Underneath the addiction, which is just a symptom, is a love of comfort, and underneath that's a love of self. Underneath the lust, underneath the control, there is a God that was never meant to be God, and Jesus goes back into Peter's past. Hear me, friends. Because where we are remorseful over action, but not repentant over the idolatry underneath the action, we are doomed to forever live in a cycle of failure. Confused why it keeps coming back around and coming back around and back. I thought I dealt with that. The surface but not what's underneath. And Jesus, because of his love for Peter and his love for you and his love for me, he has bigger and better plans for us than a life of chronic apostasy. Bigger, better plans for us than a cycle of self-confidence that leads to self-destruction, that leads to self-loathing, that eventually makes its way back to self-confidence. Here's what happens. Do you see the turn? In digging into his past failure, Jesus changes Peter's heart and creates change in him at the level of the heart. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And what does Peter say? Jesus, you know that I love you. Simon, son of John, do you love me? What does he say? You know that I love you. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter's grieved and he's emotional. And when the third question came at his denial, he got angry and he cursed Jesus and swore he didn't know him. Everything's different now for Peter. The third question comes from Jesus. He's grieved, but instead of pointing to a Jesus he doesn't know and swearing that he doesn't know him, he points to a Jesus and says what? Jesus, you know everything. You know everything. Do you see the shift If they all fall away, I won't fall away. I'm so confident in me. I worship myself. And that shifts to this humble, you know everything. Look, you know that I love you. I don't have confidence in what I will or will not do. I'm done with that. But Jesus, I have confidence in you. I don't trust my knowing. I trust yours. You see with different eyes and you know with complete knowledge and you can take whatever is in me and you can use it. He does not even answer the question about whether his love is great or whether his love is weak. He doesn't say whether he loves more than others. He says, whether my love is little or whether it's great, I am not trusting the measure of my love. I'm trusting the one I love who can use whatever degree of love there is in my heart and he can use it. Peter believes the gospel over his past and it changes his life. Peter believes that Jesus can know all of him and accept his love however weak it may be and when the gospel is applied to his greatest failure, it changes him, it brings a change of heart. You know what else it does? It covers shame with grace. Jesus going into his past, you know what it means? Think about this, if the conversation never happens, Peter's a disciple, He's sharing the gospel. All of a sudden, he's walking down the road and he sees some people standing by a charcoal fire. What does he feel? Shame, regret, guilt, remorse, reminded of his greatest failure. A month from now, having had the conversation with Jesus, he's walking in Jerusalem. He sees people standing by a charcoal fire. What does he think? He loved me. He restored me. He met me in my darkest place in my past. And he spoke life into that so that he might restore me. And those memories of shame are replaced with memories of grace. And you know what happens out of that? He is given a ministry that he was unfit for before the failure. But on the other side of the failure, he is better able to care for God's people. Feed my sheep, 
shepherd my lambs, feed my sheep. And Jesus gives that ministry to a man who is invited back into ministry with Jesus. And he places it in the hands of a man who has learned through failure to care well. Hear me. Your greatest care for others will come on the other side of your greatest struggles. Your greatest care for others will come on the other side of the sin that you fight with honesty, the ways in which you allow Jesus into that close space, believing that he can restore. You are most fit to care for others when you have first had to be cared for by God. Do you exist in that space? Are you close enough with him to be shaped by him and changed by him? Like, not just forgiving your failures, but so covering them with grace that your failures are no longer sources of shame, but they have shaped you to love others. Are you close enough to where that change is happening? Now, if you're like outside, if, if you're far away and you're in that public space and you're like, ah, I've thought about taking some steps closer, or you're in the, the social space, or even if you're in the personal space, and it's like, no, 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 there's, there's parts that I just won't, places I won't go, I'm not, I'm not there. I think often what we do in that is we only consider what it will cost us to move in closer, but we don't consider the life that we might miss if we don't. Last thing Jesus tells Peter, when you were young, you went wherever you wanted to go. When you're old, someone will stretch out your hands and lead you where you don't want to go. And John says, this is Jesus predicting the way that Peter is going to die. In AD 64, Nero Roman emperor condemns Peter to death, death on a cross. In fact, by the time that John writes his book, that had already happened. So the people who first read John's gospel read this part of the story, knowing that Peter had already died, knowing that Peter had already been crucified. But do you see what Jesus has done in the life of Peter? What he, because of this close relationship they have because of the work that he does that only Jesus can do. He made Peter the man that he wanted to become that he could not have become without Jesus. Look, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. You remember when he said that? He was wrong. He wasn't that kind of person. He didn't have it in him. He, he, he was Peter. He was the rock, but only in his claims. He was strong and brave, but only in his words, not in his heart. When it came time to be brave, when it came time to be the rock, he was sand. And if this conversation never happens with Jesus, he just continues to be sand, always different in reality to who he claimed to be in his words. But after being met by Jesus in the close space, after another charcoal fire, after another three questions, in the space of being loved and restored, he's changed. And years later, on his last moments alive, he's interrogated again. You know him, don't you? Deny him and you can live. And when he's interrogated this last time, he says, not only do I know him, but I love him. And he did not deny, but he died the same way his Savior died. He was a rock. He was Peter. He stood firm. He was the very person he claimed to be before this moment with Jesus that he had no shot of becoming on his own. Yes, to come in closer, it costs. Yes, to, to be vulnerable enough to let Jesus revisit those parts that are most painful to, to, to forgive us. Yes, but here's what I want us to consider, my friends. Have you ever considered not just the cost of moving in closer, but what it might cost if you don't? And what you might get if you do the freedom of living out 
of a love that was given to you when you had nothing to offer, and that's who you are. The joy that your failures are not just forgiven, but your life is restored through the failure and the contentment of being the kind of human that you can only become with Jesus. Father, we love you. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. It's a bit unfair, and I know it. It's a bit unfair to try and take these four really clean categories and try to apply them to life because life's just messier than that. Life's messier than that. And so what I'm asking God is that you would uh, just take your word and you would apply it to the messiness that is our lives and apply it to the, the life of the one who has, is just so exhausted from believing that they are loved by you because of the name that they've built for themselves, doing for you. Strip it away. Take them back to that place where it was just love from you before they were useful to you, God. And we'll be built on that. For the person, God, who just has a story that I don't know, I don't know, but you do. Someone who has a, a past that it's just really frightening to go back to alone. Would you just breathe courage into their heart right now? That to go back there with you is so much different than going alone. As you carry with you, even over our past failures, in one hand, mercy and grace and forgiveness, in the other hand, a future that none of our past failures can cancel out. Would you do that, Lord God? I thank you for this church. If I had one prayer in this season, and only one prayer, would you make us a people, God, who live in all four of those with tremendous honesty? Would you make us a people whose lives are built and shaped and forged from being brought in close to you, being led by you? You, Jesus, desire to be king over all of our lives. We love you. Our lives are open to you. Share me pray. Amen.